Welcome to the Summer Series of Politics and Psychology, where every Sunday we'll have special episodes of interesting interviews and fun conversations. Today we have with us Carrie Northey, otherwise known as Carrie the Mortician. She is quickly becoming one of the most influential leaders in social media and the internet for her expertise and very unique approach to understanding the funeral business, death, embalming, cremation, burial, caskets, urns, and so much more. So be sure to listen into this very unique and interesting conversation that we are going to have today. So what was it that attracted you to the uh, either mortuary sciences or the funeral directory business? Well, when I started into it when I was 16, it was just because I needed a job. So uh, <laughs> that was where my mom had worked. And it was so when I turned 16, she said, hey, why don't you try this? And I uh, ended up working there. And that was back during the pager era. So. <laughs> There was someone in the funeral home a lot longer during the day to allow the funeral director and staff to not have to be there and to get a little bit of freedom from the phones and being on call, especially in a small town. And I think my interest grew and then my love for it came later. Oh, okay. So then what was interesting, especially at 16 years old, what was interesting about it for you? I think my love of like psychology and just kind of the social experimental life was what intrigued me of watching people and seeing how people interact and the choices they make, especially when it comes to death care and what they wanted to do for their loved ones and mm. family dynamics. And I think there's so much variety in the job itself that it just every day was always a little different, always exposure to different um, societal groups and um, religions and interests and hobbies and ways that we could connect with the people and the families that were coming through the funeral home. And I think that mm. just intrigued me. And then the body work was another, you know, seeing at that time, I wasn't in the prep room or in the embalming room. I didn't see everything, but the funeral director was so good about bringing me out, showing me some things he had done with the person if I wanted to see or if I asked questions. And I very clearly remember a person who had um, taken their life. They had shot themselves in the head and he had gotten them ready. And we went in and I, I knew the person had taken their life. And so I went in and just kind of peeked to see mm -hmm. in the um, visitation room, they were all ready for the family to come in. And I said, well, how did they do it? And he said, well, they shot themselves in the head. And I said, where? Like I was so mm -hmm. that I could not tell looking at them. I think oh, I, always, wow. I always thought that you could clearly identify maybe some causes of death or things that had happened, especially if they were a more traumatic or not natural way of death. And right. So that just really was, I think, one of the first moments that I was like, huh, magic, like this yeah. is pretty amazing. So, and that was, I was pretty young at that point, you know, maybe 17, 18, I was still in high school and then um, went off in different directions and eventually found my way back to the funeral home. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. Yeah. How we kind of sometimes come back to what was our childhood interest. Exactly. So when you mentioned like the psychology about it and seeing the different races and religions, what were some of the commonalities that you saw as far as experiencing death or preparing for the funeral services for their beloved? 
Uh, well, I'm, back in the day when I was growing up, I was in a very small town, not a lot of diversity. Okay. It was more in, you know, you had your farmers, your um, motorcycle riders, that more diversity in that, definitely different religions. But now in later years, I'm getting exposed in a higher volume um, funeral home to Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, mm. about, you know, just every dynamic you can imagine. And back then it was, you know, slight differences, but definitely getting to see how a Mormon family may come in and, and do the bathing and the dressing and um, that kind of thing. So it was, it was baby stepping, I think, towards the greater diversity that I'm exposed to now. I think the commonalities, I did not partake or witness a funeral that did not have at least a prayer of some kind until mm. maybe a year or so ago. There was always what I call a Hail Mary prayer where it's like, well, they didn't believe, but we're going to just say a prayer just in case we need to, you know, <laughs> get them to plan, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was always interesting to me, even with people who were non-believers in a religion or in any higher other power, you know, power or deity, mm -hmm. there was usually just at least a Hail Mary or some kind of a generalized prayer, whether they knew what or who they were praying to, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that always struck me. And then I think more recently in the last year or two, it has been more services without any religious connotation, much mm -hmm. more generalized, just gathering and celebrating or remembering not as many structured services, more time to gather, time to be together, support each other and, and everything. Mm, okay. I've seen a few uh, videos on YouTube where they would have the person, the deceased, and they might be standing up as if they were a statue or in a clear casket. Have you had any experiences or any requests for those? We're super vanilla where we are here. <laughs> so the extreme embalming is what that is when they're posed. They're in a oh. traditional way. It is not done by a lot of people. Yeah. Um, down in Puerto Rico, there is a big demand for it. Um, I oh, did, wow. I did a video in an interview with a woman in Canada who did a kind of drum drummer mm. setup and discussed it. I, there is a lot of liability to that, a lot of trial and error, um, okay. it, a lot going on behind the scene of what you are presenting. Um, there always is anyway. But with that, you're even more so trying to figure out what you need to use, how to prop the person, how to keep them from purging, which is any fluids coming out of them anywhere. So they're mm. a little bit more uh, experience needed, but I think nobody ever has full experience in that. And right. so a lot of trial and error and just kind of trying to figure out how to do that the best way, but also a family who wants that and is willing to let the embalmer go for it and kind of try to see what they can do in this right. scenario. It's straightforward, still here, green burial even. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Burial is just sort of happening around us because cemeteries are finally 
branching out a little and allowing us to do a more natural burial. So oh. it's just, we're, we're getting there. We're just getting there in this. Okay. So, so, so I do want to ask about what a green burial is, but to continue yeah. the embalming conversation, like what, what is the process of embalming? So like a body comes to you from the emergency room or from the hospital like, and then what happens or do you get the bodies a different way? Yeah. Well, there's, there's a variety of paths. There's a variety of places people can die. We've got hospice homes in your own mm. residence, nursing homes, hospitals, medical examiner office, if they went for an autopsy. So we may bring them into our care from a variety of places and then defer finding with the family what it is they want in terms of services. Are they going to just be viewing with no embalming and preservation prior to cremation? Are they going to be doing a public viewing? Kind of what does that path look like for the family to determine what kind of body work we need to really be doing? In no mm. place in America is it a law that you have to be embalmed. When, oh. it, comes, when it comes to embalming, you may run into... Um, uh, def defined by the timeline where someone mm -hmm. has to have uh, preservation because the service is going to be so many days away, then the law of that state may define that they have to be embalmed for that. The biggest is that a funeral home may say that they have to be embalmed because that is their rules of oh. their home. And that's where I think some of that confusion comes is that a funeral home says you have to be embalmed for a public viewing possibly, but it's not a state law at all. And there's mm. no national laws on that. It's all by state. Oh, but, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. But embalming is a temporary preservation of a deceased for ceremonial purposes. Embalming is defined as just that preservation. It can be an internal, it can be just external application. It could be any of a number of things. And so, you know, defined by what I think most people believe embalming is, is that injection of chemicals and fluids for preservation and the draining of the blood out of the veins. I think is that clearly defined what people envision and think of. Right. Um, in a nutshell, we bring the person in the care of the funeral home. We're going to wash them. We're going to assess their condition. We're going to set the features, which means closing the eyes, closing the mouth. And that's done in several different ways, especially the mouth closer closure. We can suture. Some people use what's called a needle injector and you sink a little bracket with a wire on it in the top jaw and the bottom jaw, and then tie that wire together. The, oh. eyes, the eyes are cut closed with an eye cap, which is a little plastic piece. And it has little prongs sticking out that when you put it on kind of like a contact lens, it'll help hold the eyelid down in place. Oh. We then inject. And what we inject is a mixture of different fluids and everyone has their own mixture they think is the best probably, but it's the water is the main part of the solution and it acts as the vehicle to get the other chemical throughout the body with mm. a machine that pressure pushes in fluid. And you inject okay. an artery and you drain out the vein. In a perfect, perfect world, we would need just one incision, 
one injection point, but it's not a perfect world and our bodies mm -hmm. are, you know, often blocked up with clots or um, closed up arteries from, you know, build up a plaque or whatever it may be. And so if we don't get di distribution in one extremity, we may have to raise more arteries to do injection. Well, once that process is done, we then aspirate, which means we use a trocar. It's a long, uh, about foot and a half, not quite two feet long tube that has a point on one end and it's hooked up to a suction machine on the other and it's inserted in the abdomen. And our goal is to try to suck out some of the fluids in the stomach that are creating the most bacterial activity once someone dies. Okay. We also want to puncture the internal organs. So that way, when we then are done aspirating, we put fluid, cavity fluid, we call it, straight in, undiluted into the abdomen because the abdomen is where decomposition begins. And so oh. we, we want to stop that bacteria. We want to stop that process from happening or at least delay it as much as possible with that aspirating. And then we um, close everything up. We suture up and we wash the body and then they go on to be dressed, cosmetized, casketed. So in an, in a small little nutshell. <laughs> that mm -hmm. is yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't know that they did that. I was wondering how, I guess, the skin is able to look sometimes like it's plump. So I guess because you're injecting the fluids. Correct. And we use sometimes humectant fluids. So mm -hmm. they're hydrating fluids that we put in to help put some of that moisture back into the tissue from the inside because people are often very dehydrated when they died, very emaciated. They may have been in a cooler, uh, like a cooling unit for a few oh. weeks if they were at the medical examiner and such, and that cooled air dehydrates the deceased as well. So there's different reasons that dehydration may be there, but we can restore some of that tissue plump, as you say, to the mm -hmm. So through the process. Oh, okay. So then does it matter? So when you mentioned the cosmetology part after you um, close out all the body back up, then is there a way, like what makes it where some people look more realistic at the viewing than others? Is it's, that just the makeup part of it? Yeah, it's all about the condition of the deceased, the embalmer, oh. who does it, the cosmetics, um, it, there's a lot of variable. That's one thing that I feel there's a lot of questions from people who have attended a visitation, attended a, a viewing, and they wonder, why did the person look like this? Was it a bad embalming? Right. Well, it's really hard for anyone attending a viewing to judge the embalming if they don't know where the embalmer started. We may be starting oh. with a body that has been deceased for multiple days, was laying on their face, very blackened, dark purple colors, blotchiness. And we can't mm -hmm. always, we can't always correct that coloring. Um, so it's hard to know what the person started with to be able to see what may been, may have been able to be done differently. So mm -hmm. I feel a lot of those questions, but it is a lot of conjecture and guessing and mm -hmm. asking questions back to get maybe more information to give a better idea. And people will okay. typically say, 
oh, so it doesn't mean they did a bad embalming. No, it yeah. yeah, there's a there's a word called formaldehyde gray and a body. If all the blood was not moved out, sometimes the um, there can be a chemical reaction and the blood that's left in can kind of gray the body and between the formaldehyde. And so I've seen that. Yeah. Well, assume because a body is darkened or has some discoloration that it was because of the formaldehyde gray and somebody did something wrong. But that's, I think that's where a lot of people go to when you question anything in any areas, oh, they must've done something wrong, but mm-hmm. that's the best someone can be made to look based on mm-hmm. the condition. Okay. You know, but we can't, it's not like you hang up a sign that said, or put a before and after photo so people can <laughs> see that, see how much <laughs> right. you put into it and how much you can do. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, there's no one straight answer. It's really a huge variety of the beginning and the end and, and who is doing the work as well sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's kind of like in any mental or either mental health or a medical practice, we're practicing in one person's body or condition may be different at a starting point than someone else's. So then the outcomes would be different as well. Correct. It sounds like, okay, okay. That is interesting. So when, so then you're doing all of that and then most, I guess are supposed to stay stiff, but have you ever seen, I don't know if this is just in the movies and fantasy where they have like the body coming up out of the casket or like, you know, <laughs> is that really happen or is that just no. the movies? It's just a movie. You can't. Oh, okay. Like, they're not moving after death. They're not sitting up. It is physically impossible that there is ever enough, even a twitch that could make a body sit up. I mean, figure if the person is even a 200 pound adult, you have over a hundred pounds. It has to physically be raised up against Mm. gravity, against everything. And there is not enough twitch left in any muscle in a body that. Okay. That. Um, I do know embalmers that have seen fingers kind of move during embalming. We are motioning fluid through a body against muscles and against nerves and things. And some people do say they see some things along the way, but it's, it's hard to believe some of the grand mm-hmm. stories. The theatrical. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. Now I did go to a funeral and the person, um, the loved one, you know, in that was being viewed, the funeral director came and shook, shook the body and we were like, well, what was that about? So what do you think that was? Well, we were so emotionally distraught. We didn't really go back and think about it and ask about it. But I did think, well, I wonder, was something not settling or was something rising to the top? They went up to the body in the casket and did that? Yes. Yeah. It's like they um, took her shoulders and just kind of like just like shook her real quick. I... Could not even begin. (laughs) I think the only thing I would think was that maybe they were just positioning. I don't even know anything to do with what's inside, but maybe they had shifted in the casket or something. If they had moved them around, you know, the casket from the back to inside or from visitation to the church or something, maybe they had shifted and they were just trying to get them situated. Otherwise I, I, can't imagine why they would go up and just shake a 
Yeah. <laughs> so, I was like, hmm, that's odd. That's and odd. Very <laughs> odd. <laughs> now, what about, I don't know if this was, I know when I was younger and I used to always think I had sexy legs. And so I had my shoes picked out for this, you know, imaginary funeral I was planning 50 years in advance. Yeah. But then I heard, oh, well, you know, they break your legs when you um, when you die to fit into the casket. Is that true? No. You know, oh, okay. there's always bad funeral directors who may do bad things. But mm-hmm. um, there's no reason to break legs. There's no reason to do anything extreme like that. Um, legs bend. You position the person prior to the embalming. And sometimes the person is still pliable or movable after okay. the embalming to get them positioned, but there would be no reason to break legs, even if they were too tall, mm-hmm. no ways to get extra length out of the casket by crossing ankles, moving the knees, you know, bending the knees outwards a little bit so that the legs are mm. kind of positioned up a bit. Right. Um, so there's ways that you can give yourself more length and, and such to work with, but no, no need to break anything. Um, okay. That's good to know. <laughs> My plans is, are still on schedule then. Yes. Which would be highly <laughs> illegal. So we don't want that. Yeah. You can have the total Aretha Franklin where you change, <laughs> change your outfit every day and have your perfect yeah. shoes. And, <laughs> so then what about for tall people or for extremely obese people? Is there, are there special caskets for that? There are, um, there's the caskets, you get a standard size and then you can move up from there on. I have never had to order a casket larger based on length, but definitely by width. We are a growing society. And so they do make caskets that are um, slightly oversized where the inside gives as much width as you can to still fit in a standard vault. Because when Mm. you go on the ground, you do need to still be able to fit in that burial vault without having to get, um, a larger size for both the casket and the vault. Grave spaces are all measured out. There is about there. I mean, some graves, it is, maybe three inches at the most on each side of the vault. So there's, oh. a, there's not room if you want to go in between two other family members to have a oversized vault or a larger vault put in the middle. So what we've often seen, if we do have to do a larger size or a double larger size, we have to get a whole new grave space that's at the end of a row or something like that, because there's, there's not room to get larger vaults in the middle of a row typically. Mm, Okay. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. So, so you mentioned family. So then how do you, is it just one body on top of the other body or is it, do they make it side by side? They're side by side. Typically, there are cemeteries that have what's called a double depth or even sometimes triple depth, which is not Mm -hmm. very common graves where one person goes in and then the next family member goes on top. And that helps for um, not having spaces that are not used. So think back to the days where families would buy eight spaces at one time, or they were given Mm -hmm. eight spaces because they lived in the town and they pay taxes in the town. Mm -hmm. Years later, 
as cremation became more prominent, people were not going and being buried in their family lots. And so you got to the point where you'd have these random empty spaces throughout the cemetery that are just never going to be used, which is mm. misused space. It's it's not allowing for you to make the most out of the land that has been allotted for a cemetery. And so that double depth is better because it ensures that you're using the spaces more efficiently. Yeah. Yeah. So that's more, I guess, like economizing, using the space, still can, being considerate of the environment so that I guess so then you would have it dug 12 feet instead of six feet. Is that well, what double space means? Um, Not, not exactly. I mean, most graves are not going to be six feet. You're not six feet deep per se. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, It's just kind of a a coined term. Um, mm-hmm. Most people are going to be about a foot and a half, two feet below. And then you've got the rest of the vault below that. So you may be about five feet deep or so. If you do do a double depth, it may be about eight to nine feet down. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's definitely interesting because I'm always, I always feel so disrespectful if you go to a cemetery and I feel like, well, I don't know where to walk. I don't want to walk on the person. (laughs) And now knowing that they're kind of like only a foot underneath me now I'm going to feel really like oh can I have a sidewalk here or something (laughs) (laughs) wow okay so then speaking of the environment and saving space we mentioned earlier green funerals what is that it's it means something different to a variety of people it's become a very great area just to use the word green burial but by definition it just means a more environmentally friendly way of being buried most mm. cemeteries are going to require a burial vault, which is that great uh, concrete liner mm-hmm. that the casket is placed into. So one way to be greener is just to what's called butter dishing the vault, where you take the vault base mm-hmm. and flip it upside down over the casket. So the casket sits in the earth. And but it still maintains the integrity of the grave space because there's a vault above it. So your body can generate back to the earth while still maintaining the integrity of the grave space. So that is one way. It's kind of the middle ground for cemetery and somebody who wants to have that type of a burial. But typically Mm -hmm. green burial, you're going to not have embalming or you're going to use more environmentally friendly fluids you may be in a casket or a coffin that is um, decomposes where it's made of um, a simple wood. It's made of bamboo or wicker. So mm. it's the whole thing is a little more environmentally friendly. That's than- really interesting. Yes. I'm a big recycler, so that might be yeah. an idea. Yeah. So then... If, okay, their bodies, if they're using the green or the environmentally friendly funeral, there are bodies going back into there. So you would have less embalming. So when you think about people who are cremated, is there any type of devastation or negative impact on the environment by spreading ashes like in the ocean or on the ground? So... Um, burial, traditional burial and cremation leave about the same amount of environmental footprint. You're using okay. a lot of natural resources for both. 
The result of cremated remains is your very basic elements of your body. It's just the basic elements of your bone that are left. Everything else has been incinerated away. Um, the soft mm. tissue, clothing, the casket, everything. So you're just getting back your bone structure essentially um, in its basic form. Mm, okay. Is, it is highly, um, it's high salt in it. So it's 11.4 um, pH. So if you were to just take and bury or place cremated remains with vegetation, trying to grow flowers or something, it's going to kill it because oh, it's okay. such a high pH level. And so back in the day, people were planting them with sapling trees and they were putting them on top of flowers and things would die. So they now know that you have to balance that pH before you can actually spread or um, plant a tree or anything with it. Okay. 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 Hmm, I never thought about planting a tree with that as if it were soil, but I guess some people would think about that. Yeah. Okay. So going back to the bodies part of it, um, what was the youngest person that you've ever funeralized? Oh, um, I've done every gestation of of a fetal and mm. deaths, uh, many, many babies, infants, children, just, mm. you know, from a few weeks gestation and there being just barely anything there to bury up mm. to a hundred and I think 106 is my oldest that I've ever okay. um, cared for. So yeah, literally every age. Um, we took, I did a program or worked with a program at one funeral home and if, uh, hospitals will take fetal demises and um, they will incinerate them with medical waste at hospitals if the family signs off on it. And that's was much more prevalent back in the day. And one funeral home that I had worked for started a program where at no cost, we would bury the, you know, whatever tissue or anything yeah. that there was after, yeah. after the birth. And um, so through that program alone, probably 150 at least Oh, wow. Still births or fetal demises as they're called up to a certain gestational point that I've okay. buried phys just physically baby into the ground, nothing, no clothing, no box, nothing. And so I've seen babies in every stage, which is fascinating. It's very, it is very sad, but it is also fascinating from just getting to see that, um, yeah. that side of, I guess, life and what happens and everything. Yeah. So would that be emotionally more difficult to handle than the 106 year old person? I, no, I, you know, most people are like, Oh, babies have to be the hardest. I don't see it that way. And I don't feel that typically. Um, I think okay. because they're so pure and they're so innocent and it's, I don't, I, I don't, put my, my mind ever in that mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. of it. So I think there's very emotional moments that we encounter and it's all very individual for the funeral director and some of maybe their personal life and where they're at and where it resonates with them. But mm. 
babies have always been a comfort area where I am comfortable dealing with families of child infant loss. And um, I don't know why it's just been an mm-hmm. area that's always been comfortable for me. Yeah. My mom was always comfortable working with those type, those families and with her um, work history is very similar to mine. And so I said, maybe I got the gene from you, mom. I don't know, but <laughs> yeah. it, it is easier. And you'll find it when you go into funeral homes, if there is one, if there's a female funeral director, the men seem to tend to kind of send those situations <laughs> to the female. Why? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of how it ends up. So yeah, yeah that's really like, interesting. All sorts of different, every, every age range you can imagine. So I did support an organization that they took wedding dresses and then they converted them for little outfits for the infants for their funerals. I thought that was really touching. Yeah, there are um, organizations. Often the babies are too small to even fit in many Mm. of them. Uh, So at the end of the day, it doesn't always work the best uh, to place those on the the babies but right. okay it is a it is a nice thought and it does work nice if if they can if we can fit them in them and everything yeah so you mentioned uh, you said either an infant or a fetal tissue what is what is, how would they determine the difference if it was born or not born so it's a baby who does not live outside of the mother is a stillbirth. Oh. It's a stillbirth. And okay. um, by medical definition, up to a certain week's gestation, they call it a fetal demise. And mm. so they don't, it's it's not labeled as a baby, essentially, at that okay. point. Um, okay. it's, it's a medical thing. And... I get a lot of kind of kickback if I use some of the correct terms that we encounter on the medical side that that's a baby mm-hmm. and that's, and I'm like, I'm not saying it's not a baby. It's a baby as soon as they're conceived in my eyes, but mm-hmm. by definition of what they are labeled along the process, they are a fetal demise or a stillbirth child or, you know, whatever. And if mm-hmm. they are born and they register on the APGAR scale, which is how Mm-hmm. You label when a baby's born, how they react to di- different things, how their skin appears, how they're breathing, how they react to light and things. They they may not have ever looked like they live, but they might register enough on the APGAR scale to be labeled as having been born and died. So oh, okay. you only get a birth certificate and a death certificate if the baby has lived. So if there is a stillbirth, there's no, there's no paperwork, um, which is hard. So, you know, the hospital and you go through all the steps of birthing this child and then there's nothing, there's, there's nothing, there's no birth certificate. There's no death certificate. There's nothing because that did not live outside. So it's just another kind of, Insult like medical, yeah, yeah. injury along that way that there's not even any, I don't know, any keepsake paperwork that you've gone through that process because yeah, it's a horrible. Some of these mothers, you know, they go and they're told the baby's dead, and then they're sent home until mm. they've been given medicine until they go in labor and then come back in and 
I'm like, I cannot imagine having to go home and just sit and wait around. Yeah. And this baby. Oh, it's just, yeah. Yeah. That would be hard, especially because it's, you've gone through that for the whole, hopefully nine months, or even if it was less, it, you still feel it in you. I, you know, I was, oh. I'm a mom, so I know that yeah. experience. And then you have the baby and then you're like, oh, well, it's just gone. Like that would be psychologically a lot to handle. I can't imagine. And during, during COVID when you couldn't bring somebody in with you to mm-hmm. some of your procedures, I know I had, oh. I had to go in for, um, to my OBGYN for something and do a procedure and nobody mm-hmm. with me. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that people that were sitting in the other suites next to me. Yeah, could have been there having a procedure to remove, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, remove the fetal tissue, and they had to sit alone to do that, and it just yeah. hit me so hard that that was happening, and I felt, oh gosh, I just felt such heartbreak for those women that had to go mm-hmm. through that alone in those moments. That is a lot. That is a lot. Yeah, that is really tragic. Yeah, I didn't. I never even thought about that part of it during COVID. That would yeah. be extra emotionally traumatic. Yeah. Well, I guess let's switch to a more exciting topic. Okay. Um, <laughs> so one of the movies that I thought was hilarious was the Sunshine Club or the Sunshine Business, where they would go and they would clean up after deaths. So can you tell us anything about the death cleanup business? I don't know a lot about death cleanup. Um, Companies that you hire to come in. I think what the big misconception is that we go as a funeral home to bring the deceased out of the home or the medical examiner or coroner bring somebody out of the home and that people believe that there's also a team that just comes in to clean and there's not. The family is just left with what they're left with and Mm. they have to hire somebody to do the cleaning or they have to clean it themselves. There's not, it's not a service that the medical examiner provides to happen or the funeral home provides to happen. We can give company names that can do those things. Okay. Um, Like aftermath is a company that will come in and do clean up but it's not something provided through those other two services at all okay oh that's interesting I did think it was kind of associated with either the police department after a homicide or the funeral home I didn't know that that was an independent service until I saw the movie so I was like oh I guess make it all your own business okay well if anyone's listening that's a possible (laughs) opportunity for you if you're comfortable with the deceased. So then when you talk about your work, what is your primary job duties or what do you do? Because I would think a funeral person, because you're thinking about death and it's usually a personal experience. And then you think about how drained and how depressed and how sullen you may look, but you are a very youthful looking person. You look very happy. So like how how are you able to maintain the vibrancy with still being exposed to death on a daily basis? That's a great question. Um I so kind of my where I am at in my stage in my career, I'm not out on death calls at night. The first mm. many years I was I would be on call and I would go out 
no matter the time of day. And especially if you're in a smaller funeral hometown or in a smaller town funeral home, it may just be you. So you're going out, you know, you may go out at 2 a.m. or mm. 1 a.m. to go bring somebody into the care of the funeral home. You get back, you embalm. If it's winter, you might go out and snow blow. Then you go home, take a oh, quick shower, yeah. come back to meet the family, have a, you know, run the funeral, get everything ready for the next day. So you might just be up for the day. And then mm. go into a night that's the same again. So it just really depends on the setup of the funeral home you're at. And the size of it is going to base some of that. And you're also support system teams. Do you have a team that goes out at night and goes on removals? Do you have people that work visitations? Do you have somebody mm. arrangements that's not a director outside of you? So it just depends a lot on that. Um, right now, my I'm very unique because I'm a freelance funeral director in that I help out a couple different funeral homes. Um, some are on a schedule, some are as needed if they take vacations. Um, I do some trade embalming where I go in and just embalm and leave. I also teach for a mortuary school one day a week. Mm -hmm. I have my, I have my YouTubes which mm -hmm. takes a lot of time and, you know, creating content. And so mm -hmm. I have a lot of balls in the air that are outside of just being at the funeral home. But I think the work at the funeral home, you know, if I have somebody contact me and say, Hey, I want to work at a funeral home, you know, mm -hmm. what should I do first to get that, to go for it? And I'm like, you need to go in and work at a funeral home first. Right. You yeah. Shadow. You need to see what is actually happening behind the scenes because a consumer coming in and attending a funeral is seen less than 10%, I would say of what we actually do. I mean, the three hours you might spend on the phone with an insurance company, the calls to the cemetery, the clergy, the vault company, the florist, oh. fielding phone calls for price shopping or yeah. you know, line things up for a person to be flown in or to fly a person out or just checking on death or, you know, all these just office. Yeah, that is a lot more. Yeah. Are not bring in the warm and fuzzy and, you know, life altering moments that I think some people believe we're having all day, every day working mm -hmm. as directors. So I think there's a huge part of the business a consumer is not seeing when they're attending, but that's what leads them to want to be in the business because they had a good experience and it was warm and fuzzy and it was right. wonderful. But yet you also want to have some reality check to that because it's not always. Okay. Yeah. It's not always that part of it. Okay. So right. there's a lot more that goes behind it. And it sounds like you were able to incorporate with your growth in your career and the success, not having to be doing a lot of these, as you said, like pickups and then not doing a lot of on call all the time. So you're able to have some balance. It sounds like. Right. Yeah. I, you know, it, I have found, a place that works good for me that works for me as a mom, mm -hmm. uh, a part-time single mom. And mm -hmm. that I think is the biggest, most crucial thing when working in the business is finding a place that works for you. I see a mm -hmm. lot of people that come out of mortuary school, they go to work for some place and it's just not the right fit for them. It's not, 
schedule wise, the right fit, um, coworker wise, it's not the right fit. Mm. Leave the business because they believe that it's the business that is bad and not just an employer. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's true. Trying to enforce that every funeral home has a different schedule for their on-call people. Mm. Every funeral home has a different setup for supporting you, having a family life or not having a family life. And Mm -hmm. so really trying to get people to go try other places and move to jobs. But unfortunately, this is a huge business for a second career for people, which means you have established families. You have schools, you have spouses who have jobs or partners who have jobs. You have family in one area that you want to stay near because they're your support. But yet you, this is a industry you have to move to where the job openings are. That is the tricky part. And so there are desperate funeral homes right now. Oh, really? Desperate for hiring people. Oh, wow. I wonder why. Because there is not enough people coming out of schools that are willing to move and are wanting to go to the Mm -hmm. jobs in the areas that are needed. But also there's people going into school don't have as much experience as they used to. It Mm -hmm. used to be more, you worked at funeral homes and it was a family business. And so when you went to school, you had maybe a little more experience and then coming out, you were a little more experienced where now very newbie people going in that have never been in a funeral home, but they're in school for it. Okay. It's yeah. wonderful, but yet they're going to need a lot more hands-on and a lot more training when they come out. Mm-hmm. It's not always something that somebody wants to do is put the time in to train somebody from scratch. Mm-hmm. Doesn't, I see that. doesn't make sense, but that's, <laughs> I think where we're at in kind of this transition period within the business is needing to cultivate more students coming out and needing to spend more time where the older generation, that's not what it was for them. And so they're not always as willing to put in that time. So it is a bit of a roadblock time for the industry, but there are so many job opportunities, so, so many, and just not enough people to fill them right now. Mm-hmm. I could see that. I could see that because I'm kind of like old school with my education. Yeah. Like you had an internship, you did the work, you did not get paid, you put in your time. And so sometimes with younger generations, they want to come in, maybe even feel entitled. I need to get a million dollars on my first day and be the director on the second day. And I don't have to have any experience. And so it kind of does make it less attractive for people who are older and who have come from a different mindset of education. I could see that. So then what do you think about AI, artificial intelligence, when it comes to having a shortage of employees or persons who want to go into the, and having experience to go into the funeral business? Yeah. Is that possible? There's more of that starting up with obituary writing. And there's been some kind of comical posts of some AI generated obituaries that have come out that (laughs) put their information and what comes out is, is not the most um, (laughs) written, 
but I think that just there's more technology always coming out. There's more um, better programs and better computer and, you know, some of the crematorium crematorium machines could almost run themselves to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. So that has become a little bit more that with technology, it does sometimes make what we do Mm -hmm. more efficient. I don't know that most of what we can do, we can turn over to a machine. Yeah. At all. You can't have a machine embalm somebody because every single body that we're encountering is so Mm -hmm. different. Okay. You can't just, I guess, um, assembly one app for that. Yeah. Yeah, There's no no app for that. Um, but some of the paperwork side of things could be more streamlined through a program where, okay, emails out, you know, hi, we've received the death call. What kind of services would you like? And someone fills out a form that comes back. And depending what that comes back, it sends them the correct paperwork. And then once that's received, then it sends them the next part. So there could be something, but I also am such a devil's advocate for everything that all I see Mm -hmm. is how often it would probably fault just because every scenario is so unique and different. There's just the same way, especially when it comes to traditional psychology or counseling. Like, yes, you can have a diagnosis and there's a few trigger keywords, but every person that comes in and the same situation is not the same situation for every person. So I'm a fan of that as well. Well, then the last question is from having such constant exposure to death, what is your view or what is your advice for life? Oh, um, (laughs) eat the cookie and drink the beer. Um, I said said it a while back on a video and someone edited it. I I don't even know where it generated. And so that just Mm -hmm. became my thing. I think when we see people who live their life so restricted sometimes Mm -hmm. and, you know, they're marathon runners and they never go outside the box of, of what is considered, you know, a restricted healthy diet and things. And then they still die of a heart attack or Mm. whatever, you know, an accident or something at 42 years old. Well, you know, yes, their lifestyle made them happy maybe, but would having a cookie and drinking a beer once in a while made them happy. You know, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So it, I think it's life is there is all about balance and being cautious, le- trying to be healthy to a degree, enjoying work, but also understanding family. Mm-hmm. You know, that should be your main focus at the end of the day. Um, you can work a million hours a day, but I've seen more people who die within the year after they retire. Oh, wow. And, yes. Yeah. I see. You know, the, the people who are living for retirement, but mm-hmm. then nothing promises that that time after that retirement happens is actually going to be there. And so it's enjoying everything along the way. And the other day I, I did a post and just said, you know, how many days do we wake up and think, oh, I just wish this day was over. Like mm. I can't wait to get till tomorrow. This day yeah. just over, but this is the only day of this 
day that you ever get to have. So why not do something memorable in it? Even if you're not excited about work, Mm -hmm. even if you're not excited about something you have to be doing that day, don't wish a day away. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's a lot of, I love that things that you can kind of check yourself Mm -hmm. over, over and over and over in different moments, but it's, it's, you have to recognize it on your own because someone can preach to you all day about <laughs> that's true how to live and how to be happier and, and stuff, but it's going to take the right person saying it at the right moment. And, you know, I've, I have one issue with something, I won't get into it. And I mm-hmm. listen to, I've, I've had every friend tell me something and I'm like, yeah, I hear you, but that doesn't make sense. And last week, I listened to a podcast by Rachel Hollis and she just said one sentence and I was like, Oh my gosh. (laughs) And so I went back and I told my one friend, I was like, do you know what she said? And she goes, Oh my Jiminy Carrie. Like I, I say this to you all the time. I was like, yeah, but I needed Rachel to say it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Sometimes it's just an experience in a moment and somebody else saying something in a, just a different enough way that it resonates with you to want you to make a change and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know it's just yeah and i always think some people are there to plant the seed someone to water it and then at that right combination of sunlight and timing it's like oh aha okay i see it and yeah. but those seeds along the way did help it, it well i so good. yeah yeah well i definitely really really appreciate that and i hope everyone everyone listening remembers to enjoy life the life that you have and even if you're dreading the day Find something that you can do to enjoy this day because it may be your last, but it may not be. And you don't want to have a bunch of days that you wasted when you could have lived more vibrantly or abundantly. Well, thank you so much, Carrie. I really, really, this is a very interesting topic. I'm very glad to have you on the show and I thank you for coming. And yes, (laughs) and thank you to everyone for joining the Politics and Psychology Summer Series. I look forward to meeting with you every Sunday this summer for these special episodes. So enjoy your summer. Like my favorite CD. Cruising and it's just me in the front seat. She said.